0: How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Before we begin our study, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather together this evening to have fellowship around the teaching of your word, that it is your word that teaches us how to look at life as it is, as you have created it and determined it to be, and as we live oriented to that reality We understand the way things are and we can make good and accurate decisions. Father, we thank you for your grace that you have provided everything we need in life, that you have provided us with the perfect salvation through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that it is a salvation that is dependent not on who and what we are, but exclusively on who and what he is. Now, Father, as we continue our study in your word this evening, we pray you would help us to understand these things and challenge us with the things we study, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Genesis, and we're starting the first section, Genesis 2, 4 through 7 this evening. Last time we covered the section as a whole, which is a Toledot section, and that word Toledot means a record or generation. It comes and it extends from Genesis 2, 4, down through the end of chapter 4, to chapter 4, verse 26. This is an inclusive whole. It's really made up of two sections. It's made up of uh, chapters 2 and 3, which makes up one section, and chapters 4, which makes up another section. And these sections, as I showed last time, mirror each other, and when you take them apart and outline them, and their, their, their structural development, you see that they both have the same focus. And that same focus, or the center of both sections, is the sin in the first section. It's the sin of the man and the woman, of Adam and Isha, And God exposes it and uncovers it and deals with it. And then in the second section, there is the sin of Cain. And then God exposes and uncovers that sin. So... This first Toledot section is explaining, as I said last time, explaining to the Jews as they're sitting out on the plains of Moab and they're getting this record from Moses. As to their origin and the origin of the universe, it's explaining how that perfect universe, created by a perfect God, came to be cursed through disobedience of sin, how that curse affected not only the human race, but all of creation, and how God can bring blessing into cursing. Now, the first chapter focused on blessing. Three times the word bless is used in the first chapter. And then three times in chapters 2 and 3, the word 2 through 4, the three times you find the word curse, so that shows that there is a, uh, a movement from blessing to cursing, which is the, one of the main themes in Genesis, moving back and forth from blessing to cursing. Now just to give you that bird's eye view of chapters 2 and 3, the first section we begin this this evening is on the creation of man. We see that God blesses man, places him in perfect environment, and supplies his every need. This is covered in two four through seventeen. Then there's the creation of the woman. God creates the woman as the helper of the man in two eighteen through twenty five And this section as a whole mirrors the other sections. In that there is a narrative section, then there is a poetry or a song. And then there's an epilogue. And you find this structurally in each of these chapters. And that's just one of those exciting little things you see in the way Scripture gets organized that tells you that it's all written by the same guy. The liberals constantly come along and try to say that the early chapters of Genesis were not written by one person. They they reject Mosaic authorship because at the very core they're rejecting the authorship of God. So they try to find flaws in Genesis, but when you look at it in a lot of little details, what you see is these things just kind of stand out, indicating that it's all written by the same person who has a, a, a unified idea and a unified theme that he is presenting. The first section, the creation of man, second section, creation of woman 2, 18-25, and then the third section deals with the introduction of the serpent in chapter 3, 1-5. through five. And then the center of this whole section is in the man and the woman's sin, and God uncovers it in chapter 3 verses 6 to 13. See, we've moved into the center, creation of man, creation of woman, the serpent, and then the center, and then we move back out. That's why the structure is called a chiasm. The next, uh, reflects C. You had, C was the serpent. C prime is the punishment of the serpent. B prime, is the punishment of the woman, and A-prime is the punishment of the man. So you go man, woman, serpent, in the center, and then you come back out, serpent, woman, and then the last thing being the punishment of the man. Now, in chapters 2 and 3, we see that God is supplying, God blesses man in perfect environment, but... Man disobeys God and brings upon himself cursing, and he brings that cursing on the environment. It's not just cursing on himself, but it is cursing on all of creation. So that uh, we see that this section deals with how the first man who is formed from the dust of the ground is given everything by God, and then he chooses uses his volition in a wrong way, revolts against God, and brings evil into the world. So this these two chapters explain the existence of evil and why man endures pain and trouble and calamity. Now we're going to start off this, this evening I'm going to give you an outline. Now I don't know if you've ever seen this kind of outline methodology. I'm just, I've been exposed to it in the past, but I'm beginning to find it's a little more efficient to use. Most of us are used to the Roman numeral 1, then a capital uppercase A, and then a lowercase 1, and then a uh, lowercase A, and then you'll have 1 in parenthesis, and then you'll have a in parenthesis, and then you'll have small Roman numerals, and when you get down into those minor sections, things get pretty confusing, and this is an outline methodology that some of you who are in high school or going off to college can uh, uh, learn. It's a lot more efficient. You have your first line, your first, what would be the all the Roman numeral letters are just are designated with an A, so you have 1A, 2A, 3A, 4A, and those are all your first-level paragraphs or divisions. And then your next level, you indent that in one, and that's the B column. And that's just 1B, 2B, 3B, 4B. And then your next indention is your C column, and so you don't have to figure out how many little things go where. See, the 2A, I see that furrowed brow out there. Trying to figure this out. 2A is your your Roman numeral column. The 1B, the B column, is It's the same as your capital A columns. Your capital A indention. Then your C indention is the same as what would be just your Arabic number in a, in a not in the other outline form. And then your D column would be your lowercase case. Uh, a, B, C, or D. But this allows you to indent all the way in and not lose track so much. It's a little bit different to get used to, and I probably didn't do a great job explaining it to you. It wasn't explained to me in a great way years ago when I was in seminary, and so I never really adopted it. And Dan and I were discussing it the other day. He's got a Hebrew professor that has, uh, has introduced him to this. He was excited about it. And I said, now wait a minute. I got two questions that have always bothered me about that outline system. And I asked him and I got answers and that cleared it up. And it is an easier way to run an outline. So what we see here in terms of this outline is in the, in the basic section, you have the history of the heavens and the earth. That's our Toledot section. So as we go through the book, what would be Roman numeral one, two, three, that's going to be your basic sections and divisions in the book of Genesis, your Toledotes. Then your first major subdivision in this history of the heavens and the earth is going to be the origin of sin in the human race. So you really have only two divisions in this section, the origin of sin in the human race, and the development of sin in the human race, and that's going to be the story of Cain and Abel. So we'll have one B and two B, and that's it. Those are the two basic basic divisions there. And then in this section, two four to three twenty four, there are going to be two sections: section one uh, C. God creates perfect environment for the habitation of mankind. ...and the test for the angelic conflict, and that's 2, 4 through 25. And then chapter 3, verses 1 through 24 will be the, the second part of that. And that is that God, that man uses his negative volition to destroy perfect environment... ...and fails the test for the angelic conflict. So you see how you have two basic sections... Where we are now is in the first section of 2, 4 through 25, the creation of man. This creation of man is 2, 4 through 17. We'll have two sections here, the creation of man, or actually, there, yeah, two sections here, the creation of man, and then the creation of the woman. And that will cover this the entire section of chapter 2. But this section on the creation of man is subdivided into three sections. The first section is four through seven, which is the creation of man. This uh next paragraph is eight and nine, which is going to cover the uh structure and geography uh, of the garden. Or actually that's uh uh yeah, eight, nine and ten. Or eight, eight eight and nine is the um eight and nine has to do with the the provision in the garden, ten through fourteen, the geography of the garden. And then 15 through 17, the test in the garden. And then 18 through 25, the provision of a helper in the garden. But we will get into those details later. All we're looking at now is this 1E section at the bottom. God creates man and 1F, the condition of the earth. Prior to the creation of man, that's 2, 4 through 6, and then 2, 7 will be the creation of the man. So that's our orientation, the bird's eye view of this passage. So let's start in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now let's just make a couple of observations about this summary statement. This is an introduction to this entire section from 2.4 down through 4.26. A couple of observations on this is we have an obvious account of uh, or an obvious structure of synonymous parallelism in this introduction. It is structured to bring out a certain point. This is... I'm uh, skipping ahead well I don't have this I thought I had the slide on it okay we'll use that that slide I should have let me make one minor change here bring the point back back out again. There we go. This is the account this is the account of the heavens and the earth, and then you have the phrase when they were created that's your first line of the heavens and the earth is part 1 when they were created is part 2 and that is mirrored by uh the line in the day when the lord god made there's a parallelism there and then it comes back out to earth and heaven and it's and there's it's like a mirror image you know when you look in the mirror you the you see things uh, in reverse and that's what you see here it starts off with the statement that um, The first line states the heavens and the earth. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. And notice in the second half of the verse, that's reversed, like a mirror image. It's reversed, and it says the earth and the heavens. And uh, the earth and the heavens. And what the author is doing is driving our attention to earth. It is going to shift from talking about earth. The heaven to earth. Now this just goes back to understanding this imagery that you have in a chiasm. Say you're going to have heavens and earth and then a statement about when they were made and that God created them. That's your, that's your center point of this verse focusing on creation and then there's a reverse to earth and heaven. Now, if you take that same chiastic principle where you have heavens, earth, and then earth and heaven, whatever's in the center is what the author is driving your attention toward. So what's in the middle of this phrase, heavens and the earth, and then earth and heavens, puts our focus on the earth. So the author has moved from the creation as a whole in chapter 1 and all that God made to now he's focusing our attention on just the earth. What is going to transpire on the earth? So in our structure of the verse, first in the first part it has heavens and the earth. In the second part it has earth and heavens. In the first part it uses the Hebrew preposition bait or in. Uh, in this case it's called the temporal bait. When they were created and it uses the word Barah, Bara. Which is a word that technically denotes the creative activity of God. The creative activity of God. Only God is the one who creates. And then you have a synonymous, a line of synonymous parallelism that restates that idea in a slightly different way and slightly different vocabulary where the author says, in the day, which is actually a Hebrew idiom for in the day when, so he, instead of using the temporal bait, he is once again making, uses that temporal bait with the word yom for day. And he is making the same kind of statement in a, just using different words. When the Lord God made. Now, in the first part, he used a passive verb. He used the nifal stem, which is the passive stem of bara. And in this line, he uses the active stem, the cow stem, of asa, which is in this sense, in this sentence, parallel or synonymous to bara. But he brings in, in that second line, with the active voice of the verb, the subject of creation, and that is the Lord God. So he is bringing out something new at this particular point, and introduces a new name for God. Now let's break this down a minute and look at the details, the exegetical details of the passage. It starts off these. This is the um, this is the Hebrew word aleph, which is a demonstrative pronoun, and it indicates what follows. It indicates what is following. See, this is what we're getting ready to talk about. These, these, or this is the account. The Toledote, these are the records, these are the generations. Toledote is, a, is a, a plural noun, so these are the generations. This word Toledote is used 13 times in the book of Genesis. And it marks off, because some of those are repetitious within the account, it marks off 10 major divisions in Genesis. So if you look at Genesis as a whole, it's they're, they're basically composed of 10 books or ten parts. It's, you could, it's this tremendous narrative. I mean, the, this, you, you look at Israel and their, their storytelling ability, the ability to craft a good drama is evidenced throughout the book of Genesis. There's such conflict between the characters. There's such tension that is built in the development of the plot. And you can just see them sitting around a fireplace out in the wilderness telling these stories and the kids just sitting there going, well, and then what happened? Then what happened? And so these these records, these sections, these Toledotes indicate the different parts or divisions of the overall narrative of Genesis. The word itself comes from the root Yalad, which means to give birth or to bear children. And here it means that which is produced or brought into being by someone. So literally we could translate this passage. These are the descendants of the heavens and the earth. These are the descendants of the heavens and the earth. So each of these Toledot sections is going to focus on, here it's the heavens and the earth, but later it will be Adam, and then Noah, and then Noah's children, and then Terah, the father of Abraham, and then Abraham, and then uh, Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Ishmael. This is what happens to their descendants. That's the essence of what this is saying. Now we're going to tell you what happened to the Heavens and the earth. The next thing we note, as I pointed out already, is that there is a name shift for God. In the first chapter, God is only known by his generic name, Elohim. And Elohim is like our word in English for God. Do you believe in God? Some people translate Allah, God. We believe in one God, the Muslims will say. It's not the same God, but the term God, G-O-D in English, is just a generic term for deity. It is does not distinguish any particular deity. So when you have the word uh, Elohim in Hebrew, it can have various meanings. In fact, in some places, it even indicates people who are in authority like judges within the social structure of the civilization and within the social structure of Israel, so Elohim itself is not a technical designation for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That comes with the introduction of this new name for God, Yahweh, and this is the personal name for the God of the Bible, Yahweh. This is looks like I've got the Hebrew up there on the on the on the screen. And it is composed of four consonants, Y-H-W-H, and it is sometimes pronounced Yahweh or Yahweh. Uh, There was so much scholarship that was done in Hebrew by by Germans, remember, so many of the Jews resided in Germanic-speaking countries. Uh, throughout the diaspora, throughout the Middle Ages, they lived in Germany, they lived in the area of Austria, Hungary, uh, Switzerland, that area, that a tremendous amount of the, in, of that, of the, um, of vocalization for Hebrew was influenced by that. Germanic background where a W would be pronounced like a V. You don't have a W in the German language. Whenever you see a W in German, you pronounce it like a V. Whenever you see a J in the German language, you pronounce it like a Y in English. It doesn't have a J sound. It has a Y sound, the sound of a Y. So that's where you get this sort of shift where you have the development of the term Uh, Jehovah, the four letters in the sacred tetragrammaton, and that word tetragrammaton means four letters, are YHWH, but because of the influence of German, that Y was often transliterated as a J, and the W was often transliterated as a V. That's where you came up with this JHVH. Now, the other thing about the about the Tetragrammaton is that the Jews, out of reverence, developed a superstition about pronouncing the name of God. So, whenever they would read the scriptures, rather than pronouncing the name of God, they would read Adonai. Now, Adonai looks like this in Hebrew. Adonai, now this vowel point here is sort of a short A. Almost a, almost, it's, it's, it's called a, uh, comet and it's a very short, short A. This little dot up here is your long O, and this symbol here, uh, is a, an, an A sound. That is a vowel point for an A sound. So what happened is, and this is sometimes written this way. So what happened is that as they wrote these words in the Hebrew Bible, they would write out the Y, H, W, H. Those were the consonants, but when they added the vowel points, they added the vowel points of Adonai and put that underneath Yahweh to remind the reader not to read Yahweh, but to read Adonai. As a result of that, because of the vowel pointing there, you develop a word, you pick up that first vowel that's a short E, J, you pick up the O from Adonai, put it after the H for Jehovah, and then you take the last vowel, A, and put it in there, and that's how you got that word Jehovah. Jehovah. But Jehovah is not a Hebrew word. Jehovah is a made-up word based on the consonants from one word and the vowels from another word. So when you get people like the Jehovah's Witnesses that come along and knock on your door and tell you that Jehovah is the only name for God and there's only one God and it's Jehovah, well, they're worshiping a made-up name. That's essentially what's going on with the Jehovah's Witnesses and they plus a number of other problems because they deny the deity of Christ and the eternality of Christ and that he is the eternal son of God. So this is where that word uh, comes from. And the first time that we have the appearance of Yahweh in the Old Testament is right here in verse 4. Now the other thing that is important noticing this is that liberals since the early 19th century have attempted to use the name shift... To attribute different portions of Genesis to different authors well one guy likes the word Elohim and you can always tell when he was writing because that's the word he uses to refer to God and this other writer he likes the word Jehovah he likes to always refer to God as Yahweh so he's the Yahwistic author and he wrote these sections and then somebody came along somewhere around the 5th century BC notice about a thousand years after Moses somebody came along in the 5th century and just sort of edited these things together and so they're really different and divergent accounts of Scripture and that is I've disproven that earlier in previous previous classes so we won't get off into that but that's why it's called the JEDP theory J for Jehovah. Now, one guy preferred that name, E for the Elohim author, the Elohistic author, the D for this would be the Deuteronomist who wrote Deuteronomy, and then P for a priest who came in later and added other sections. But it's just sort of guesswork and by liberals who have to figure out some way it got written since they reject the Bible's own account that it was written by Moses. Actually, the meaning, the understanding of the significance of Yahweh doesn't come along until Exodus. God's name is known by Abraham as Yahweh, but the real significance or meaning of the name is not revealed until Exodus. And when God appears to Moses in the burning bush and commissions Moses to go back to free the Jews from their slavery in Egypt, Moses says, well, who shall I tell the Jews has sent me? And God said to Moses in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You see, the root... The etymological root of this word Yahweh is the verb Hayah, y, I mean H-A-Y-A-H, and Hayah is the word for, is the to be verb, it's the word for is or was or to exist, and it has the idea the idea behind the name is to emphasize the eternal self-existence of God. The eternal self-existence of God. I am who I am. This idea, I am that I am, is further reiterated in Revelation 1.8 when it refers to the Lord as the one who is and who was and who is to come. The idea of these senses—past, present, and future—being being all there in that name was uh, was elucidated by Ravi Bechai, an early medieval rabbi. These three times past, these three times—past, present, and to come—are comprehended in this proper name. As is known to all, so he recognized that the very name of God, I am who I am, includes God's eternal existence in the past, His omnipresence in the present, and His eternal existence in the future. Now it also had specific Significance for the Jews because it is Moses who comes to the Jews on the plains of Moab and says, I mean, excuse me, he comes to the Jews in, in Egypt and he says, Yahweh has sent me. So it is Yahweh who delivers the Jews from slavery in Egypt. It is Yahweh who brings the plagues. It is Yahweh who parts the Red Sea. It is Yahweh who sustains them in the wilderness. And it is Yahweh who speaks to them from Mount Sinai and gives them the Mosaic law and enters into a covenant. We studied that in the past. Enters into the Mosaic covenant the Sinaitic Covenant, and gives them the law. So when they hear the name Yahweh, the one thing that that always reminds them of is God, the God who has entered into a contract with us as a nation. God has entered into a contract with us. So when the Jews on the plains of Moab, remember this is a second generation, the Exodus generation has died off. These are their children who have obeyed the Lord. When they hear Moses tell this story and and Genesis 2, and that it is Yahweh Elohim who forms man. The Yahweh who forms Adam is the same Yahweh who entered into a contract with them, and the very mention of the term of Yahweh picks up the moral demands of a covenant God. It is Yahweh who placed these moral demands of the law on Israel, and it is the same Yahweh who places a moral demand on Adam in the garden. So this is, this is all packing the picture of the narrative in Genesis 2 that God is going to establish a volitional test for the human race and the core issue in morality is going to be obedience to God or not. Now by, uh, now this is transliterated in English with the words Lord, usually capitalized with a capital L-O-R-D, always indicating that that is the transliteration of Yahweh. That way you can look at your Bible and tell what the original would be. If it's a lowercase, uh, the second letter, second, third, fourth letters are in lowercase, then it's probably Adonai. When Lord has small caps, then it's Yahweh, and if it's the word God, G-O-D, uppercase G, lowercase O and D, then that's uh, a reference to Elohim. Now, our English word Lord is derived from the old Anglo-Saxon Hlawford, which eventually became contracted by by the time of Beowulf into the word Loverd, and eventually that came to be pronounced Lord. And etymologically, this word floffered, see notice that first, those first four letters, H-L-A-F, that was the word for bread. So it came to mean bread or a loaf of bread. And so the idea is that the halaford or the Lord is the one who is the giver of bread, the provider of bread, the one who sustains and nourishes his creature. So the English word Lord is an apt trans, uh, translation for the biblical word Yahweh is the one who is the creator of all and the one who provides everything. So Genesis 2.4 simply introduces this next section. When the earth was created in the day that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, made the earth and the heavens. Now verse 5 begins to continue to describe the conditions on the planet at the time of the creation of man. We read in verse 5, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Now this is a verse that in the English not only sounds contradictory to chapter 1, but you're really missing the, the real power of this verse as it comes across in the Hebrew. Because there's an ominous tone to this verse. It looks to us like it's just saying, hey, there's not any shrubs yet. The ground's pretty barren. Uh, no plants have come forth yet because there hasn't been any rain and man hasn't been created yet to till the ground. So you think of the earth by looking at this as just sort of a barren patch and nothing's popped out yet. But that's a contradiction to what's gone on in chapter 1. And you first of all, you have to assume that anyone who is a writer if they have two or three brain cells that are connecting, would recognize that if he wrote it this way, uh, was was saying that, that this was a barren land, that that was a contradiction to what he wrote just some 20 verses earlier. But see, the typical liberal... Uh, especially liberal theologian has such a high view of man and such a low view of God, but they have because of evolution they they think well ancient man was much dumber than we are so he really didn't know that he was con- contradicting what he had just said just twenty or so verses earlier in describing the third day of creation. I want you to just turn back a page, and look at verse twelve. Verse 11 and 12, actually, in chapter 1, this is the third day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth grass. Well, wait a minute. I thought you just said that when God created man, it was barren. There's no shrub there, there's no plant. But it says that on the third day, the earth sprouted vegetation. And yielded seed, and and trees, whose seed was in itself according to its kind, so that the earth seems to be covered in grass and and shrubbery and trees on the at the end of the third day. Well, wait a minute. What's going on here? Genesis two two five is talking about uh, coming back and giving the details of the sixth day. Why does the earth seem to be barren? And that's because we don't understand the the, the significance of the Hebrew words here. The word that is translated shrub here is the word shiach hasadeh. Shiach hasadeh literally means, and I'm going to pump it up a little bit, weeds of the field. And the key phrase you need to note there is the hasadeh. It's of the field. This is talking about a particular kind of plant. Whereas in Genesis 1, 11 and uh, uh, 12, it's talking about all of the grasses and herbs that cover the earth. Genesis 1:12 uses the word desha. It's d-e-s-c-h-e. It's not seach. Siach is a subcategory. So we're talking about a particular category of plant. Now the desha that talks talked about in Genesis 1:12 that God says uh, let the earth bring forth grass. That's desha. It's comprised of two categories, shrubs, which is the word esiv. Now, when it uses the word shrubs back in Genesis 11, uh, 1, 11, and 12, that's a different Hebrew word from the siach of Genesis 2.5. So Genesis 2.5 is talking about a subcategory, and it is parallel. This of the field brings in the idea that is seen at the end of the section. Look at the last couple of verses in, um, not the, actually the last couple of verses, but look at verses uh, 18, verse 18 of chapter 3. There we read that, our, in verse 17, where we get the curse towards the man, Cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So the ground now becomes cursed. What happens? Both thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat of the herb, what? The herb of the field. So the of the field is particularly related to agricultural products. Now, the fact is that we get this misconception when we look at the garden. We think of the garden, there's a garden, and then there's the, the translation in uh Later on in the verse, it says that Adam is placed in the garden to tend, and it's translated to tend and to keep it. And so we get this idea that Adam's created to be a gardener. And so we pick up this idea that he's already working as a gardener, but that's not what's going on in the text. The best analogy is that Eden is set up as like a temple. Eden is set up as a temple and Adam and Isha are placed in that temple as the priests who serve God, and their role is to serve God and to rule the creation. And that is the function of their priesthood in this Edenic temple. And we'll see that when we exegete that verse, that the word to tend, avad, is the word to work, but also is used of the priestly service in the temple. So these are words that are heavy with, with worship connotation. Now, when it says in verse 5, before any plant of the field was in the earth, this word sheak has the idea of plants that grow in the desert or the steppe. It's a subcategory of esiv, and it refers to plants who who live out in the desert steppe. Now, remember, there's no desert in the perfect environment of Eden. So these plants weren't in existence yet. These plants haven't come into existence yet. So that's what the author is saying. It's a, it's an ominous foreshadowing. He's telling his teacher, now when God made the heavens and the earth, remember this is before any of the weeds of the field were there, before any of those thorns and thistles were there, and before any herb of the field had grown. What's necessary to grow the herbs of the field? Genesis chapter 3, 18. You have to have a man tilling the soil. But you don't have a man tilling the soil until after the fall. He doesn't have to work the soil for food until after the fall. Before that, he's got this lush Garden of Eden with all kinds of fruit trees that provide everything he needs to eat. He doesn't have to go out and labor intensively in order to get the food. He has responsibility and work that we'll see. But it's not laborious work and his sustenance is not dependent upon him getting out there and working the soil. So when, when Moses writes this, he's, he has this foreboding tone here that remember this is before there were any thorns and thistles. It's before you had to work and produce agricultural crops for the And the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. And again, that second part of the verse brings in that ominous tone. When did it begin to rain on the earth? With the flood of Noah. That's a tone of judgment. Rain was judgment from God. There was no rain between the creation and the flood. There was a different hydrosphere in operation on the planet that watered the land, and so uh, rain itself, the coming of rain, is a, a indication of judgment. And the fact that there's no man to cultivate the ground, again, that's a result of judgment. So verse 5 is a, is a verse that is talking about the fact that this is before there was any curse in the land. In fact, what he's Basically saying is, now remember, this was a time before the curse was on the earth and or there was any judgment on mankind. This was a time before the curse was on the earth or there was any judgment on mankind. Furthermore, when you look at the verse in the Hebrew, it uses a word twice, the word kol, K-O-L. And literally it reads, in the English it reads, before any plant of the field was in the earth. And that's not what it says. It doesn't say before any plant. It says literally, the word coal means all. And it says before all the plants of the field were in the earth. So he's not saying before any plants, but he's saying before all of them. There were some categories of plants that weren't in the earth yet. The thorns, the thistles, the weeds, the cactus, the cacti. All of these were not there yet. Not all the plants of the field were in the earth. And not all the herbs of the field were in the ground. So God has already created the broad kind categories. And they have come forth from the earth on the third day. But there is going to be a shift. After the curse, and there are going to be some new types of plants that spring forth from the original kinds that are uh, less conducive to life. If you've been working in your garden lately, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, there's another play on words that's developing here, and that is this word ground. It is the Hebrew word adamah. You just spell it like Adam, except you put an ah on the end of it. And this is setting up a pun. The writer of Genesis uses a tremendous number of paranymasias or word plays that bring out different subtle points in the text. But we will get to that after the next verse. Verse 6 we read, But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And here he uses the word Adama a second time. So we're having Adama, Adama, and then man is going to be formed in verse 7 from the dust of the ground, Adamah. But the man is Adam. So there's this word play between Adamah, ground, and Adam, the man. And he's called Adam because that means means red. He's colored like the ground. He's colored like the earth. You see these pictures that we have where uh, you have Adam and Isha in the garden. And they're painted like they're... Western European Caucasians. They weren't. They were a brown-skinned people. Uh, they were like Middle Easterners. They weren't, they weren't black. They weren't white. They were brown-skinned, earth-toned people. And all the races came from that. And we have to be careful that we actually represent the people in the scriptures. People in the scriptures are of Middle Eastern descent. And the people in the scriptures are uh, Jews and Arabs, they're not Western Europeans. They don't, I just love looking at Renaissance uh, art because they always paint the biblical characters in Renaissance garb. And I've got a great picture that we're uh, I'm going to scan in to use when we get to Noah's flood. But it's this picture of the ark, and you have three or four people who have come off the ark, and they're over on one side of the picture offering a sacrifice, and they're dressed in, in robes like you would typically find in, uh, in Middle Eastern dress. And you see the pairs of all the different animals coming off and spreading out from the ark. And then over on the right-hand side of the picture, you have this uh, shepherd lad, Herding some uh, sheep and cattle, and he's dressed in what looks like sort of a formal Renaissance court costume. And then in the background, on the far right, you have a castle. Now, why the castle didn't get destroyed in the flood, I don't know. But uh, just just so many little oddities in Middle Eastern, or, or excuse me, in Renaissance art. Anyway, verse 6 says it describes for us the hydrosphere, gives us a hint of the hydrosphere of the earth at that time, that there was this mist that went up from the earth and there was no rain. You have a different kind of water cycle. Now about this, I want to quote uh, Henry Morris. Now Dr. Henry Morris was a founder of the Institute for Creation Research. He has his Ph.D. in hydraulic engineering and he's a good old Texas boy. And even though he's in his late 80s now, I think we still call him Texas boys down in Texas. And he got, did his undergraduate work at Rice University and later went back to Rice in the early 50s and taught at Rice University and attended a, a church there some of you have heard of called Baraka Church. He left Houston in about 1954-55 and went to... Uh, become a professor of hydraulic engineering at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute. And then in the 1960s, he went to Southern California to found the Institute for Creation Research. So Henry Morris, as a hydraulic engineer, understands the impact of water and understands hydraulic systems. So this is what Morris says about the situation here. The original hydrologic cycle was thus drastically different from that of the present day. The present cycle, which began at the time of the great flood, involves global and continental air mass movements and annual and seasonal temperature changes. It summarized quite scientifically in such scripture passages as Ecclesiastes 1:6-7, Isaiah 55,10 and 11, Job 28, 24 to26, Job 36: 26 to 29, Psalm 135,6 to 7, and many others. This present cycle centers around the solar evaporation of ocean waters transporting to the continents in the atmospheric circulation, condensation, and precipitation in the form of rain and snow. And this, of course, is transported back to the oceans via rivers. That's the cycle you have evaporation out over the oceans. You'll see that now on the news. They'll start going down to the tropics to see if there's any buildup of, of storms or hurricanes. And as the heat builds, the water evaporates, uh, goes into... Um, a a gaseous state of water vapor in the clouds, then when it comes over land, it condenses on dust particles in the air, and due to temperature changes or whatever, it then precipitates out in the form of rain, or if it's cold, in the form of sleet or snow. That's the cycle, so it's built upon wind, and it's built upon temperature variation, but Obviously, in this perfect environment, you didn't have that kind of wind. You had a light breeze, and you, you didn't have these major temperature variations. So it's a completely different water cycle. He goes on to say, As originally cre- in, in the original world, however, there was no rainfall on the earth. As originally created, the earth's daily water supply came primarily from local evaporation and condensation. There was also, as noted later in the passage, a system of spring-fed rivers. Now, when he gets down to where he talks about the rivers in verses 10 through um, 14, he makes this statement. The change in temperature between daytime and nighttime apparently was adequate to, to energize daily evaporation from each local body of water and its condensation is dew and fog in the surrounding area each night. This arrangement was implemented on the second and third days of the creation week, prior to the formation of the plants on the latter part of the third day. Now when he talks about the rivers, he said, the source of this river, and we saw last time there's one river that comes out of Eden, and then it diverges into four. says the source of the river was said to be in Eden, though presumably somewhere outside the garden itself. So that indicates that there is a location called Eden that is outside of the garden. Since there was no rainfall, the river would have to be supplied through a pressurized conduit from an underground reservoir of some kind, emerging under pressure as a sort of artesian spring. The fluid pressure, however, could not have been simple hydrostatic pressure. In other words, it's not just gravity at work here. Uh Hydrostatic pressure, which he explains, is pressure resulting from gravitational flow of groundwater from a source area at a higher elevation. Because this would also depend on rainfall. So the pressure has to come from something else. This he explains in the next paragraph. The pressure in the subterranean reservoir could have been established either when the waters were first entrapped below the land surface and compressed by the weight of overlying rocks, presumably on the third day of creation, or else by heating from a deep-lying heat source. The latter is more likely, since otherwise the pressure would gradually be dissipated as the waters escape to the surface. If there was a continuing heat source, however, as well as a continuing supply of water to the subterranean pool, then the artesian spring at the surface could be fed indefinitely. In other words, you've got an underground cycle and not an above-ground cycle like we have today. And somewhere in the bowels of the earth, there's this heat source which would heat up the water, and that's what's causing it to move. And, you know, just like you go and you look at a fountain. You look at a fountain, and water comes out the top, and it goes down to the lower pool, but it's, it's recycled back up to the top by means of a pump. Now, what he's saying is that it's that heat inside the earth's surface that generates this cycle. Heat rises, and so as it heats it up, it cycles that water. So it's a unique system. It's very different from what we would have on the earth today. All of this is suggesting that the information available to Moses is information that fits A scientific framework, as we understand things, but it is not anything that Moses would have had a frame of reference for. So how did Moses learn about this? It was either revealed to him by God, or it was contained in these records that had been handed down from Adam and Noah uh, down through the generations. Now we come to the focal point of this first section in verse 7. Everything in verses 4 and 6 is just to describe the context of the creation of man In verse 7. The creation of man in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So here we see, first of all, that God forms the human body from the dust, or the chemicals of the soil, the chemicals of the ground. The emphasis here is on that the one who creates man is the same covenant God who creates Israel. It is Yahweh Elohim. Isaiah 43 1 says, But now thus says the Lord, that is Yahweh your creator, O Jacob. This is Yahweh who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, Yatsar. Yatsar is a word that we have here for the formation of man in, in, uh, uh, verse, verse, uh, verse 7. O Jacob, and he who formed Yadzer, you O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. So Yahweh is a title that is uniquely related to the formation of Israel. Yadzer is a word that refers to the work of a potter. The work of a potter. This is indicated in uh, Isaiah 29.16. You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me. Or what is formed, Yat-Seir, there's our word again, or what is formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. So the imagery here is of a potter who is bent over his clay, just working with these raw elements, and he has a predetermined plan in mind as to exactly what he wants his product to look like. He is thoughtful, he's precise, he's deliberate, and there's a sense of artisticness to what is going on here. And that's the picture of God. This is not something that happens by chance. The human body is not something that God just said, okay, well, you know, I've, I started off making amoebas and bacteria, single-cell creatures. That went pretty good. Then I went to uh, metazoan, and protozoa, and I went on up the chain, and I got better as I went along, and now I'm going to come to man. And, you know, I did pretty good with the apes and the chimpanzees and the orangutans, but let's just kind of clean it up a little bit, and we're going to straighten them up a little more so they stand a little more upright, and that, that looks like a pretty good design. That's not what's happening here. The omniscient God, the omniscient creator God of the universe is bending over this. And and just let's let's, uh, anthropomorphize or anthropopathize this a little bit. He's thinking, he's saying, I'm going to send my son who is going to reveal himself to these creatures. Therefore, this physical body that I am creating for him... ...has got to be a body that is the best possible body that can be used to reveal who I am and what I am to creatures. This will be the highest finite form of revelation of God possible. He is thinking not only of the fact that this is building the house in which he will incarnate the second person of the Trinity... ...but furthermore... Once this creature is regenerated in the church age, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is going to take this body and make a temple out of it. What we see here is a tremendous significance is placed on the value of the human body itself. See, we have this, this tendency that we picked up from the Greeks as we emphasize the soul so much that the body almost becomes irrelevant. And that had its worst effect in, in Gnosticism. We studied Gnosticism in our study of the Epistles of John. And in Gnosticism, the idea was that which is material is evil. That which is spiritual is, is good. So the emphasis was on the spirit and anything in the spirit world that touched the material world, somehow became tainted. And that which was in matter or became incarnate would, of course, be tainted by sin. And so the docetics, we studied the docetics, who said that Jesus never became true flesh, that you didn't believe in the incarnation. He was just an appearance from the Greek word dokeo. And this verse, understanding this and the significance of verse 7 shows that there is tremendous value placed upon the physical body of the species. It is designed specifically and intentionally by God so that when he incarnated himself into this body, it would be the very best possible structure To present himself as to who and what he is and all of his character. If he's going to take all that he is and his infinite, omni attributes and be scrunched down into one finite replica, this is the best of all possible bodies. And you can think in terms of all the different creatures that you come up with in these science fiction movies that God, of course, being omniscient would have known all of those and many more possible configurations he could have come up with. So the body, the way you and I look in terms of our whole structure is specifically designed so that God himself can inhabit this body and be, and, and, and reveal himself. And remember, it is this Body, like you have and like I have, that is the body that the second person of the Trinity will have forever and ever and ever in hypostatic union. He is sitting today localized in one place, even though in his deity he's omnipresent, but in his humanity he is localized at the right hand of God the Father in a body like yours and mine. That gives tremendous value to that body, and not only that, But as we study the development of the soul, the soul never exists without a body. So even though we emphasize the soul is the real you, there is no time when the soul doesn't have a body. It has to have a body through which to express itself. So there is an interim body. We know from Luke chapter 16 that the story of uh, Abraham uh, and the rich man I mean, excuse me, Lazarus and the rich man, Lazarus the beggar, not Lazarus the brother of Mary and Martha. Lazarus and the rich man, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man goes to Tartarus, and he says, you know, Father Abraham, let Lazarus come and put his finger in the water and touch my tongue with it. So that indicates if he's got a finger and he's got a tongue, that indicates some sort of interim body. And then we're going to have a resurrection body. And this shows that there is a unity in the makeup of man, which is exactly what we're going to see in our passage in verse 7. So man's physical body... We see from this passage is formed from already existing materials. And this is the development of biological life. The DNA structure, cell structure, molecules, blood cells, and the brain as the home of the soul. But at this point, all you have is a body. There's no soul. Now let me pose a question to you. What would happen if someone came along at that particular point, at the end of that first clause in verse 7, right after the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, before he breathed into his mouth, and you've got this physical body laying on the ground, what would happen if somebody came along and decapitated that body? Would it be ethical? Would it be moral? Would it be God's plan? No. But would it be murder? No, because the soul's not there yet. It wouldn't be the plan of God, but it wouldn't be murder because it doesn't yet possess a soul. Biological life alone does not equate to full human life. It is potential human life. It's intended human life. It is what's called nascent. Human life. Everything being left to its own, it will gain, acquire that soul. So, what we see in the first part is the formation of biological life, and then in the next part, we see, and we see this biological life, before we get ahead of ourselves, the biological life is formed from the dust of the earth. And this is the Hebrew word afar. A-P-H-A-R. Meaning dust, earth, ground, Ashes, sometimes mortar pow- powder or rubbish, so don't think too highly of yourselves, that from which you came. Uh, we come from dust. It's used of clay in a number of passages. Job 4.19, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, that is in physical bodies, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. That's us. We, have, we live in houses of clay, and our foundation is dust. Job 10.9, remember now that thou hast made me as clay, and wouldst thou turn me into dust again? Isaiah twenty nine sixteen, you turn things around, shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay that what is made should say to its maker, he did not make me, or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. We're made from clay, from dust, from the particles of the earth. Isaiah 45.9, Isaiah 45.9, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel, see that's us, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth, will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands? Isaiah 44.8, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any other God beside me or is there any other rock? I know of, uh, of none. But we have this treasure, even the New Testament picks up this idea, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. So we live in an earth-based body. God has developed this. Now, we are made from dust. Now, my one final point is that there is a contrast here with evolution. The Remember, when in our study of creation and evolution, I said there's three groups of people. The first group are the people who've just plain capitulated to the scientists. They can't make any mistakes. They figured it all out on the basis of less than one 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 thousandth of all the available data. They figured it all out. It's really more than that. It's a, as we've seen in our study the statistics. And those who capitulate are the liberals who admit that when it comes to the Bible, yes, that's what the Bible says, and they'll say that's exactly what it means, but it's wrong. Science is right. Then the second group are the accommodationists, and these are the ones who try to fit the Bible and science together in some particular way. The third group are the ones who accept the Bible to be a literal, accurate, historical report of how the heavens and the earth were made. Now the accommodationist tries to come along, and when he reads this, that man is formed of the dust of the ground, he tries to get some kind of metaphorical meaning out of this. Okay, dust of the ground—that refers to that whole process of of coming up from just the primordial ooze all the way up through the uh, chain of of evolutionary being, all the way up to man. It's just a metaphor for this whole process that took. Uh, millions of years. The problem is you have to understand dust in the context. Remember the whole thing in real estate is location, location, location. Those are the three major rules in in real, real estate. Well, location is context. And we have to look at the context. And dust is used a second time in the context. If you look at the end of this section, in 3.19, what Adam is told is, in the sweat of your face you shall be bred till you return to the ground, to the Adamah. From out of it you were taken... For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now see, if this term, being made from the dust of the ground, is metaphorical for the evolutionary process, then to be consistent, you'd have to go to verse chapter 3, verse 18, and say returning to dust is a devolution, and going down and reversing the evolutionary process. So there's no way you can be consistent. What amazes me about liberals is they think conservatives can't think. The liberal theology is so fraught with problems and internal inconsistencies. It is amazing the lengths to which negative volition and arrogance will go in order to try to avoid the fact that man is created to submit to an all-powerful God who puts a moral obligation on the creature. Furthermore, the the uh, liberal, the I mean, the literal meaning here is made even more clear in 2.21-22 to 22, when the human female is derived from the one original uh, body. And this is clear from the New Testament. When we get into the New Testament, how does the New Testament interpret this? Well, we've seen this in two passages we've studied in 1 Corinthians recently, and we're not going to go through them again. But in 1 Corinthians eleven six through 9 we saw that Paul's argument his reasoning, his rationale for why women were to maintain a position of subordination to the male is because the man was created first and the woman is created out of the man and created second. That's the same thing that is said in 1 Timothy 2. So the New Testament looks at this as a literal event where the male is created first and the female is created secondly out of the male. And the point I'm making is that if you start messing with Genesis 2, you under Cut key doctrines in the New Testament, and you undercut marriage and the whole foundation of marriage. And we see how this has worked out ideologically in our in our. Uh, Western civilization. The more we have rejected the literal teaching of Genesis 2, what happens is me, me, the roles of men and women have been affected so that now women have the idea that they are to be equal with men in all aspects. And that's not what the Bible says. They are equal in essence as human beings. As, equal sharers in the image of God, but they have a different role. They were created with a different soul. They have a different purpose and function. And when you go in and you start arguing for certain uh, equality issues that have become so in, so natural to our uh, 21st century culture, what you don't realize is those are arguments that are based on a rejection of the literal meaning of Genesis 2 and you start seeing this whole social shift takes place because in the 19th century men uh the intellectuals in western civilization rejected what the bible said about who man was who women who woman is and who the human race is So, so far we've just been able to look at the creation of biological life as God forms the male from the chemicals of the soil. And next time we're going to come back and look at the uh, operation of breathing into man the breath of life and what that means with our heads bowed. And our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word this evening. We pray that you'd help us to understand these things and see how they apply to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.